Counting the Cost of Payout, which was the title of the paper, can be done in a number of different ways and we saw a lot of diversity in this. Alternatives to payout, they may be superior um, from a financial stability point of view or they may also be more cost effective. The more cost items a deposit insurer includes in calculating the total cost of payout, the more likely it is that a non-payout measure is less costly than the payout. Hi, I'm Ryan Defena, joining you from the International Association of Deposit Insurers in Basel, Switzerland. Welcome to the latest instalment of the IATI podcast series. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Ruth Walters. Hi, Ryan. Nice to be with you today. And Raska Vabaski. Hi, Ryan. Always good to be a guest of Yadi. And they're both from the Financial Stability Institute, along with Bert van Rosebecker. Hi, Ryan. From the IATI Secretariat. And, and they, together with Nicola Costa from the Single Resolution Board, recently published an FSI Insights paper titled Counting the Cost of Payout, Constraints for Deposit Insurers in Funding Bank Failure Management. So the topic sounds particularly complex and not all listeners may fully understand what this is about. So Bert, could you perhaps offer some background and a, and a short introduction? Okay, so, so let me start with deposit insurance, uh, which, which is a concept that uh, most of our listeners um, may actually know pretty well. So up to a certain coverage level, um, the deposit insurance uh, would protect you as a depositor um, from, from losses upon, upon the failure of your bank. Um, but um, I think it's important to stress that deposit insurance are, are, are very different globally in, in, in what it is that they can actually do. So we at IADI, uh, we would typically differentiate between, between four uh, mandates um, for deposit insurance. So we would have pay boxes and pay box pluses, uh, and then also um, loss minimizes and, and risk minimizes. And, and, and the broth of the mandate of those deposit insurers would, would, would grow um, with the four of them. Um, but but I think most of our of our listeners would know what reimbursement is upon a, upon failure of a bank. So you you would get your deposit, you would get your money um, reimbursed, uh, ideally within within seven days uh, of failure of the bank. Uh, but um, that will mostly mean, of course, that the bank will be closed and and and, and liquidated and and well taken off the market. And um, what we thought, well, there is other options um, for managing um, a bank failure. So you may actually transfer um, deposits, you may install a bridge bank, and I'm sure we'll come to that later, uh, later today in the podcast. And, and these other solutions, these alternatives to payout, they may be superior um, from a financial stability point of view, or they may also be more cost effective than, than the liquidation and, and, and the payout. Um, but um, these other options, they may require financial means that, that go actually beyond what the failing bank um, can offer, um, for example, as a loss absorbing capacity um, through the writing down of the bank's capital or, or writing down the claims um, of, of creditors of the bank. And I presume this is where deposit insurers come into play. Yes, that's exactly right. So, so there may be cases where it would be better, as I said, from a financial stability point of view for the deposit insurer not to reimburse the depositor, so to avoid um, this, this payout and to support what we call in the paper non-payout measures. So this could be a, a sale of deposits of the bank, of the failing bank, um, to, to another bank. And, and well, for depositors, this would mean that the bank would remain open, so it would reopen typically on a Monday, 
but um, the bank would have different owners and, and may actually operate under another name, but the deposits would still be accessible. And, um, um, and that may be better than this sometimes lengthy and costly procedure and process of um, identifying depositors and then actually paying out depositors. All right, so this all sounds very reasonable. So Ruth, where is the problem that your paper deals with? Thanks, Ryan. So the problem we're looking at is the potential for tension between the use of deposit insurance resources to fund the kind of non-payout measures that Bert was talking about, and on the other hand, a deposit insurer's ability to reimburse depositors, because that's its core function. And this possible tension has two broad reasons. The first is institutional. It relates to what the deposit insurer is set up and mandated to do under the broader legal framework and its own constitution, its own mandate. Um, DIF resources, deposit insurance fund resources, should only be used in accordance with that deposit insurer's mandate. Um, if the deposit insurer's primary, and this will be the case for everybody, and in some cases its only mandate, its only obligation, is to protect insured depositors, then it follows from that that the um, deposit insurance funding should only be used to provide support measures that at a minimum, protect those insured deposits by ensuring continued continuity access to deposits. Um, but you know, as, as we know, in these kinds of transactions that Bert was talking about, there are lots of other liabilities, other assets in the, the bank. And so the question is, can the deposit insurance funds under the mandate be used to support that? The second reason why this tension arises relates to the funding of the Deposit Insurance Fund and its financial ability to meet its objectives under its mandate. Um, depending on what non-payout measures are, they could potentially be expensive to the Deposit Insurance Fund, thinking in terms of things like capital and liquidity support, which some but not all deposit insurers can do, and those are potentially open-ended. Um, so without appropriate safeguards, making deposit insurance fund resources available to fund those kind of non-payout measures could have a negative impact on the firepower of the deposit insurance fund. Um, and this in turn could have a consequence on the public trust in the deposit insurer's ability to pay out depositors. And as we all know, one of the primary reasons for having deposit insurance is that trust. So that's the problem in a nutshell. Okay, so this is about balancing the protection of deposit insurer's resources with the, the flexibility that's necessary to fund non-payout measures that may more effectively address financial stability considerations. So Rasko, in your paper you compare 13 jurisdictions across the globe and look at how they attempt to reach such a balance. So why do you do that? I mean, why would these jurisdictions come to different solutions? Thanks, Ryan. There are indeed a number of reasons for that. Let me pick out just three of them. First, what we call bank failure management is organized very differently across jurisdictions. In some countries, this would be referred to as bank resolution, whereas other jurisdictions, the EU is a good example, would apply resolution as a specific legal scheme in cases that meet a public interest threshold. In other cases, they would conduct bank failure through more or less conventional insolvency laws on the national level. This often leads to misunderstandings, which is why we use the more general term bank failure management as a term encompassing all these various scenarios. The second reason is the following. 
In addition to different legal frameworks being relevant to bank failure management, we also noticed that across jurisdictions, the actors involved may be different. In some of the jurisdictions we investigated, such as, for example, the US, Japan, Mexico, Uruguay or Denmark, to name just a few, the deposit insurer is also the bank resolution authority. In other jurisdictions, Italy, Spain or, for example, Brazil, the resolution authority is institutionally separate from the deposit insurer. And that, of course, has implications for governance. The third reason is that in most of the 13 jurisdictions we investigated, we found that there is only a single fund for use in bank failures. That is the deposit insurance fund, and it may be used either to pay out insured deposits, as Ruth uh, uh, mentioned, or to fund non-payout measures. In other jurisdictions, particularly in Europe, this is different. There we have deposit insurance funds on a national level and the single resolution fund as a supranational fund for non-payout resolution in the banking union. In addition, some national deposit insurers in the EU may use funds to fund non-payout measures as an alternative to payout. However, this depends on the mandate of the national deposit guarantee scheme. Okay, I understand. So the the setup of bank failure management is very different across jurisdictions. And I suppose this concerns the, the legal norms applied, but also the actors involved and funds used. But how do these institutional differences impact on, on striking the balance between protecting deposit insurers' resources and safeguarding the flexibility necessary to fund on payout measures? Perhaps this is a question for Bert. Well, um, when writing our paper and looking at, at the jurisdictions, we, we, we found that, that um, jurisdictions where the uh, deposit insurer is also the bank resolution authority, that those jurisdictions tend to grant more discretion to the deposit insurer in deciding how its funds are, are actually used. Um, and that is um, typically less the case within jurisdictions where, where both, um, where, so where the deposit insurer and the resolution authority are separate um, entities. And I mean, it's not, not very surprising, right? So it suggests a greater need for constraints to protect um, the resources of the deposit insurer um, where, where key decisions on the failure management um, are made by, by another institution, right? And, and, and where the deposit insurer is the decision maker itself, there is more scope for flexibility, um, of course, within, within the parameters of its, uh, of its mandate. Uh, and also where, where the deposit insurer is not the primary decision maker, um, it, it may not be able to fund actually non-payout measures that bring the question of flexibility into play because of its mandate and, and the broader legal framework. Um, especially in Europe, for example, um, as, as Rasko just alluded to, a number of EU member states um, ha have not implemented um, the option that is available in, U in EU law for, um, for alternative measures um, as, as an alternative to, to actually reimbursing um, depositors. Okay, so this explains why there are different approaches in, in striking this balance. Uh, Ruth, did you also find common elements or, or common approaches that are relevant to deposit insurers for funding non-payout measures? Well, yes, we found that um, all the surveyed jurisdictions we looked at, and as they said, there were 13 of them, they all seek to achieve that balance that Bert was talking about by imposing quantitative constraints on the use of the deposit insurer's resources um, for such measures. So quantitative constraints, limits on how much can be used. 
um, the most common quantitative constraint, um, and this was in some form in all of the jurisdictions, is to limit support um, by deposit insurers to the costs that the deposit insurer would incur in payout. Um, but it's not actually that simple, um, because the way that the deposit insurer determines the cost of the payout differs significantly, and we saw that. Um, so, counting the cost of payout, which was the title of the paper, can be done in a number of different ways, and we saw a lot of di diversity in this. One of the biggest differences is the types of costs that are taken into account in that calculation, so the costs of the deposit insurer that they actually um, take into account. Um, everybody included the direct costs of the covered deposits that will be reimbursed, but beyond that we saw different practices regarding you know, what wider costs you may or may not take into that cal um, calculation. So the options are, well, they include the operational costs to the deposit insurer of actually conducting a payout and a liquidation. Um, these are likely to be empirically quantifiable, so um, we're not really getting into the realm of speculation there. There was a second category, um, and those were the consequential costs of the deposit insurer, such as, for example, the opportunity costs or the borrowing costs to the deposit insurer um, that it incurs when it's used its funds um, to um, or mobilise additional funds to finance the payout, so it's lost out on the use of those funds. Then there was a third category um, of potential costs that included not only those that arise directly from the case in question, which was the in case with the first two, um, and these are, say, the putative costs of the deposit insurance fund of managing future bank failures that might be expected um, as a consequence of the systemic, systemic impact of a liquidation. So the idea goes that um, you liquidate a bank, you pay out the deposits, but that has an impact on, say, confidence or on the market generally and that other banks will fail. So this um, category of consequential costs takes into effect, um, into account those um, other costs that are considered um, likely to arise. Um, and of course that there's a certain element of uncertainty here, requires a considerable level of judgment and discretion, some might say speculation. Um, and we saw that the consequential costs um, are um, you know, less commonly used. Then there's a fourth ca uh, category which is the systemic impact of the liquidation and that again is the, the knock-on effect and that is less, um, less used as well. Okay, so the extent to which different types of costs are considered varies across the jurisdictions you investigated. Uh, what is the relevance of that for the, the deposit insurer's ability to fund non-payout measures? Yes, that's a very, that's a very good question, Ryan. Um, so basically what we can say is the following. The more cost items a deposit insurer includes in calculating the total cost of payout, the more likely it is that a non-payout measure, i.e. transfer of deposits to another bank, is less costly than the payout. On the other hand, deposit insurers that include a very narrow set of costs in their calculation of payout are more likely to come to the conclusion that that very payout is the least costly measure. One factor that is important in some jurisdictions, mainly in Europe by the way, is the form of depositor preference under the legal framework. That is how insured and uninsured deposits rank in relation to other liabilities and in relation to each other. A high ranking for insured deposit means that deposit insurers will in many cases be able to recover 
a large share of the payout costs because the deposit insurer will subrogate to the depositor's claims and profit from that ranking. Those recoveries are subtracted from the costs that the deposit insurer would incur in payout. As a result, the net costs of payout will be much lower than the original amount of reimbursed deposits. Obviously, this makes liquidation and payout a more likely outcome of cost-based decision-making. Right, so your, your paper describes the aim and the practice of a, a quantitative limit for deposit insurers in using their funds for non-payout measures. But is it always a, a good idea to stick to a, a cost-based decision only? Well, I mean, what we, what we saw in the sample is that um, there may be situations where, where such an exclusively um, cost-based approach is, is not satisfactory. In, in the sense that we found that two-thirds of, of the survey jurisdictions um, provide for, for systemic um, exceptions. Um, and, and these would allow for, for deposit insurers to override the, the existing constraints on, on the amount of resources that they, that they can use for non-payout measures, um, but that so in cases with systemic risks. Um, so it's not, it's not necessarily going away from, from a quantitative approach, but it, it would allow for, um, um, for, for a systemic exemption to the existing rule. So this, this often go, goes hand in hand, of course, with, with backstop arrangements um, for, for, for public emergency funding to support um, the credibility of the deposit insurance fund, because as was said before by Ruth, I think this is something that, that of course we want to protect. Uh, and, and jurisdictions without such a systemic um, exception for the deposit insurer fund, those tend to be jurisdictions that, that already have a special resolution regime for banks um, that may be systemic uh, in, in failure, and those jurisdictions tend to have specific funding arrangements um, for those cases that, that are often separated um, from the deposit insurance fund itself. Okay, great. Um... So from your cross-jurisdictional comparison, did a, a best practice model emerge that most effectively balances the need to protect deposit insurer funds and at the same time offer sufficient flexibility to fund non-payout measures? I wish I could say yes, but in fact, no. We, we started the project thinking we would find the, um, the gold standard, but um, in fact, as we, we went through it, it was difficult to identify approaches that could be a, a best practice example for others. And the reason for that is that the, the constraints that we've discussed are only one aspect of a, the financial safety net framework. Um, and um, there are many other elements in the design of that framework that would have to be taken into account. Um, some examples of those elements, well, they include the institutional arrangements and the, um, the way that responsibility for decision-making in bank failure is allocated between different um, authorities um, because you may have a separate resolution authority that's making those decisions, it may not be the deposit insurer. Um, the mandate of the deposit insurer, so what the deposit insurer can actually do. The coverage level of the deposit insurance, which um, has an impact on the amount of funds that are actually in the deposit insurance fund, as well as what the level of the, um, the payout costs are going to be. Um, the capacity of the backstop emergency funding arrangements for the deposit insurance fund, um, and in particular, 
know, the public element of that, because that, again, will um, have an impact on how much funds would, in fact, in practice be available. And the availability of other sources of funding for resolving failing banks, such as, as Bert mentioned, um, separate resolution funds. So there are all those different factors, and they are implemented differently under different frameworks. Um, all of these involve high-level policy decisions about how the costs of managing bank, um, bank failures are allocated, um, and those again have been made differently across jurisdictions. Um, and as a result, the feasibility for deposit insurers to defund payout, uh, defund non-payout measures in a um, given case differs. Um, and that, that's the reason why we couldn't find a, a gold standard to present in the, the paper. Um, and the, I mean, one of our main conclusions was that um, where the policy decision has been taken, that the deposit insurer should be able to fund non-payout measures, the deposit insurer must be given under the framework and its mandate the necessary flexibility um, to be able to do this and that there are governance safeguards in place and those are set appropriately. Um, a key point behind all of this is that deposit insurers are responsible for the management of their funds and the appropriate use of those funds within their mandate. This requires sufficient transparency um, about their decision making, accountability about the decisions that they've made and how they're implemented, and a meaningful role for the deposit insurer in decision making about the approach to failure management. So there are all of these moving parts and how you put them together really depends on the 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 big picture. So that's why we can't give a very simple answer to that question. Well, a big thank you to Ruth, to Rasco and Bert for their time. Uh, for those interested in learning more about the FSI Insights paper discussed today, please head to bis.org slash FSI. And many thanks to those who've tuned in. Do look out for the next instalment of the IRD podcast series. For now, it's goodbye from Basel. Thank you.